بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الحمد لله والصلاه والسلام على رسول الله السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته brothers and sisters and friends and welcome to this 8 week online course no doubt 10 strategies on how to deal with your and other people's doubts this course brothers and sisters and friends is going to teach you how to fish it's not going to give you fish. What do I mean by this? When someone's hungry, they want to eat. And say you give them some fish. And then after a day, they'll get hungry again, and you give them more fish. There's going to be a point in time where you're going to run out of fish. An effective strategy is to teach them how to fish. Then you would not need to provide fish for that person. You may have heard of this before because it's a really powerful way of empowering someone to be able to deal with doubts. It's an empowering way to deal with anything. When you give the person the tools, the intellectual and spiritual tools, the effective intellectual and spiritual tools to be able to deal with doubts. So this eight week course, no doubt, 10 strategies on how to deal with you and other people's doubts is going to be based on empowering you to be able to effectively deal with your own doubts and the doubts of other people. So hopefully we're going to give you the intellectual and spiritual tools to be empowered and equipped to deal with doubts. So this week, we're going to be going through the metaphysical backdrop, we're going to talk about the nature of the heart, we're going to talk about the heart's main tribulations, if you like, the fitten, and we're going to talk about today's crises and challenges, and we're going to stop at talking about the source of doubts. And as you can see in this slide, throughout the next few weeks, we're going to be dealing with all of the strategies, the 10 effective strategies to deal with your and other people's doubts. And these include being aware, not giving them any attention at a certain stage when you're experiencing doubts. You need to be able to make the distinction between doubts, questions, and whisperings, which we're going to talk about in the next few weeks. Also, one of the effective strategies is thinking about your environment, your friends, your social environment, your subgroup, and we're going to go into social psychology and related matters to show you the importance of having a correct social environment. Also, we're going to be talking about the need to study Islam because the more you have ilm, the more you study Islam, you are able to dismantle very effectively some of these doubts. And we're going to give you some case studies in which where when you study Islam, when you acquire ilm and knowledge, that you are able to dismantle the doubts effectively. Also, we're going to hopefully teach you critical thinking or empower you, empower you to be able to critically think. And we're going to give you some examples concerning ethical, moral doubts, 
intellectual doubts such as science, the philosophy of science, so on and so forth. We're also going to talk about the importance of finding a specialist because we know when you go out in the world and you try and access the specialists in our community that you will find that we have some great minds, some great minds in our community that are able to deal with these doubts effectively. And from this perspective, we're going to briefly go through the epistemology of testimony, which is the say-so of others, as Dr. Elizabeth Fricker, she discusses that she has cognitive limitations. She cannot know everything, so she has to rely on the authority of others. Likewise, with some of these doubts, you're not going to be able to know everything. That is the nature of the human being. But we have been blessed with specialists in our community that are able to deal with these doubts. And we're going to also talk about how to deal with trauma, because today we're going to be covering the source of doubts. And one of the sources of doubts is also trauma, negative experiences, a death of a loved one, you know, the, the perception of too much evil and gratuitous suffering in the world, so on and so forth. And we're going to hopefully empower you to be able to stand in the possibility to give a different meaning to your perceived trauma or to your experiences thereby empowering you so you could be able to deal with that trauma and by the way everyone has a level of trauma in their lives and it's all about in some instances being able to stand in the possibility and give a different meaning to that trauma and we're going to refer to cognitive science as well at the same time with regards to this issue and we're going to unpack that much later throughout the course we're also going to be talking about focusing on your heart because when you learn today about the nature of doubts, the nature of subuhat, which we're going to discuss a little bit more in a few moments, that they attack the heart and they are like a parasite and they drain the iman, the faith uh, in your heart. And therefore, what you need to do, you need to be able to strengthen your heart spiritually. How do you do that? How do you traverse a path of valid and authentic Islamic spirituality to be able to have a heart that is strong from a spiritual perspective? Also, we're going to end by teaching you supplications from the Quran and the prophetic traditions on how to safeguard yourself by asking Allah for help. Because at the end of the day, these strategies are never going to work unless it's in line with the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything is dependent on Him and Him alone. And the whole process of making dua, of supplicating to Allah is a key act of worship. It is the brain of worship. It's the essence of worship because it is a manifestation of our true state. And the true state of the human being fundamentally is totally and utterly dependent on the divine will totally and utterly dependent on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you make these supplications, something's going to happen and something's going to change. And this is very important because we even see this in the life of Ibrahim, alayhi salam, Abraham, upon whom be peace. When he supplicated to God, this is in the Quran, to safeguard himself and his family from polytheism, from associating partners with the divine. This is Abraham, the one who smashed the idols he was a force against the falsehood of associating partners with God, against the falsehood of shirk, as we say in the Arabic Islamic tradition. 
and also the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, may God's peace and blessings be upon him, he also used to make a frequent supplication to God, to Allah, and asking him to keep his heart firm on his religion, firm on the true faith of God, which is singling out all our acts of worship to God alone, to Allah alone. So these are some of the strategies. Obviously, I haven't gone into too much detail, but these are the effective strategies. And I truly believe that if you are patient enough throughout the next eight weeks or so, and you internalize these strategies, you learn these strategies, you implement these strategies, there's going to be change in your life. Now, you may be a Muslim who has some doubts. You may be a non-Muslim who used to be a Muslim. You may be a non-Muslim that wants to become Muslim. And all of you are suffering from some kind of doubts, some kind of subha, which is the single for singular for doubts, some kind of shubuhat, which is the plural for doubts, which really means destructive doubts. Okay. So from this perspective, I really believe if you stand in the possibility, and I want you to really appreciate this, I want you to stand in the possibility, forget right or wrong for now, forget truth or falsehood for this particular moment. I want you to stand in the possibility that you're going to engage with these strategies. And when you engage with these strategies, there is a possibility that something's going to change. Something's going to fundamentally transform and your doubts will be annihilated. Okay. But you have to just stand in the possibility. You have to be coachable. If you presume anything, if you superimpose your previous experiences, your limited ideas, and your ego, everyone has an ego, by the way, don't worry, yeah? Your ego, your, your perception about the speakers and the instructors, whatever the case may be, if you superimpose this intellectual and emotional baggage onto these strategies, it's not going to work. Just have a epistemic duty, a duty to knowledge that you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to stand in the possibility that these strategies may have the potential to transform me. Now, once you're open to that, then it means you're coachable and then we'll be able to engage together in a very positive way to have those transformations. Now, after being coachable and being open and, you know, placing your emotional, intellectual baggage to one side, after doing that and it hasn't worked, then come speak to me. But for now, for the purposes of this course, let's have intellectual humility and let's have an epistemic duty a duty to knowledge to stand in the possibility that these may work also it's not just about knowledge because remember abstract knowledge doesn't change anyone here's an example i know what it takes to be probably one of the best boxers in the world from an abstract knowledge point of view i'd write you an essay the question is though am i the best box in the world no, absolutely not. I'm actually really, really good at training. But, you know, when I used to go into the ring, it was like not as great as my training. There was a there was a gap, right? So my abstract knowledge of being able to be the best boxer in the world doesn't translate in the real world. Also, let me give you another example. I probably know what it takes to have the best diet in the world and be really, really healthy, you know, have your whole foods, don't have refined foods, move away from sugars, 
you know, eat in small portions, have fruits and vegetables, you know, stay away from lots of meats and oils, so on and so forth. So I really know what it takes to have a really good diet and be very healthy. But what did I eat about an hour ago? <laughs> Do you see my point? It Just because you may know something in an abstract way, it doesn't mean you become it. Remember, listen to this very carefully. Knowing doesn't give you access to being. Knowing something in an abstract way doesn't give you access to being. Take, for example, being a really good parent. I could probably tell you, just based on my experiences and limited reading, what it, can, what it takes to be a really good parent. But am I the best parent? No, sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm, good. I'm weak. I'm a human being. I'm going to fail, right? Am I the kind of parent that I want to be? Do I aspire to be a great parent? Of course, but am I the best parent? Would I describe myself as the best parent? No, I wouldn't. But can I tell you how to become a best parent in, a, in, in an abstract way? Yes, I can. So there is, a, there is a gap between knowing and becoming. So I want you to understand that knowing these strategies are not going to be effective for that transformation. You have to become these strategies. So this is the key. And this is why you have to attend the whole course so we could engage in a, in a way that helps you internalize them, but in a way that you have an experiential, an experiential process. So the process we're going to be going through is very experiential. That's not going to be abstract knowing, but becoming these strategies. For example, you know, my mom makes a great sweet Greek dish. It's called Rala do Buriko. It is awesome. I could go to my mom's house and I can have 10 or 11. No problem, right? Okay, I might feel a bit guilty after that, but, you know, I'll have them. No issue. Now, my mom can train someone how to make them over the phone. She could give the person the exact ingredients and measurements, but it won't be the same. In actual fact, I think she's already done it and it, and it wasn't the same. So in order for you to truly appreciate my mom's galadobureko, there's no point you speaking to her on the phone and getting all the measurements and doing everything scientifically. It's not going to be the same. Your knowing is not going to give you access to being, you know, being uh, the, 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 the cook that my mother is, right? And you won't be able to experience the galadobureko the way I am experiencing it. But the way you can do that is by going to my mom's house and tasting it for yourself which has nothing to do with knowledge. It has nothing to do with abstract knowledge. You probably don't even know how to say the word galadoboreko, <laughs> or you don't even know how to write it down. You probably don't even know what it is. And who cares? The point is for you to experience that taste and that sweetness and that amazing dish, you have to come to mom's house and taste it for yourself. So this is why you need to understand this. It's not always about knowing. It's about how can this affect my being, which means how I relate to myself, how I relate to others, and fundamentally how you relate to Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how you relate to Allah glorified be he. So I hope this is clear so far. Let me just summarize this again. So today we're going to go through the metaphysical backdrop, the nature of the heart, the heart's main, the heart's main uh, fitten or tribulations. We're also going to talk about today's crisis and challenge and the sources of doubts. After this week, in the weeks that are going to follow, we're going to be dealing with the effective strategies to deal with 
your and other people's doubts. Now, some of these strategies are for before you have the doubt, and some of these strategies are for after you have the doubt. Most of them are for before and after, but some are for after and some are for before, which we're going to discuss in the appropriate time. So let me just go through them again just so you understand. We're going to be talking about that you need to be you need to be aware that destructive doubts to your faith exist and what they are. Remember the nature of doubts of shubuhat is that they don't have any intellectual basis. They are the intellectual equivalent of a wolf in sheep's clothing, and we're going to discuss that in a few moments. But being aware is very important because it allows you to now be able to make a distinction and be able to understand that there are these things that are like parasites. I want to suck my the faith from my heart. And it's not necessarily an intellectual phenomenon. It's dressed as intellectual gymnastics or something so-called intellectual, but it's really falsehood, right? And we're going to discuss that in a few moments. The other thing is not to give them any attention. This is before they really seep into your heart. Because once you are aware, then you know what to be aware of, and you now will be able to understand that if they're coming or they're, or, or they're in a certain place, such as the internet, for example, then you put things in place to give them no attention or not to approach them. Or fundamentally, from this second strategy point of view, that if they do come into your heart and mind, that you basically stop and ignore them and you seek refuge in Allah. Because at this stage, you know they're wrong. At this stage, you know you have a psychological aversion to them. You know at this stage that this is not something that you believe to be true and you know it's false. But because it has that kind of that kind of aura, if you like, this doubt has an aura of falsehood, but at the same time, it's somewhat appealing to the degree where you give it a little bit too much focus and once you do that then it goes into your heart and it saps away slowly your faith and your iman and this is why at this stage you don't give it any attention then we're going to be talking about making a distinction why are distinctions very important distinctions are very important brothers and sisters and friends because they empower you i give an example if i go to a village in say africa and there is a herds person and he's uh, I don't know, he's taking care of cows and all those cows are brown. I can't really make the distinction between the different type of cow. All I see is brown cows, right? But for him, because he's made the distinctions through his experience and knowledge, he knows that each cow is slightly different because of its color, because of its size, because of its type, if you like, or, or its breed. And he can make those distinctions and it empowers him because he knows all those cows are not all the same. But for me, all I could see is like a hundred brown cows because I don't haven't made I haven't made the distinctions between the different type of brown and maybe you know the size and the different shade of brown means something specific about that that particular cow. I can't make those distinctions because I haven't made those distinctions, but the herds person can. Conversely, if the Herds person were to come, for example, to Los Angeles and see all of these cars, he doesn't know the difference between a Mercedes and a McLaren. He doesn't know the difference between a McLaren and a Bugatti, right? It's for him, it's like metal things with wheels. But for me, not that I like cars that much anyway, but I know how to make the distinction between a 19-year-old Honda Civic and a Bugatti Veyron. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? 
Because if someone came up to me and said, do you want a Bugatti Veyron or 19-year-old Honda Civic? I'd be like, you better give me that Bugatti Veyron because I might not drive it for a while, but I'll definitely sell it because it's a hell of a lot of money, right? I could make that distinction because through, through, through my knowledge and my experiences, I'm able to make that distinction. So it empowers me in truly relating to those cars. Likewise, the Hertz person is, is empowered because he has the knowledge and the experience and has made the distinctions to empower him to be able to get relate to those cows in a way that is a representation of reality. Now, this cow is a different size, a different shade. This, this cow, you know, has a particular attitude, for example, or a particular behavior. This other cow is a little bit bigger, it's got different shapes, a different shade of brown, and therefore this cow has a different attitude or acts in a particular way. So the way he can relate to those cows is more powerful and empowering because he could make those distinctions. And that's why we're going to teach you how to make distinctions between shubuhat, destructive doubts, waswasa, negative spiritual whisperings, like shaitanic whisperings, and valid questions. If you are able to make a distinction between those three, it's extremely empowering, which we're going to discuss in the next couple of weeks, God willing, inshallah. Then we're going to talk about your environment. Now we're going to, by the way, when we talk about these strategies, we're going to be talking about the Quran and the Sunnah, the, the, the source text of Islam on how they approach these issues, but also the kind of modern studies that we have available. For example, in social psychology, there's loads of studies on social influence and how it affects your, your cognition and your understanding of reality. We're going to be talking about the famous case studies concerning uh, influence and the development of the social norm, informational social influence, normative social influence, peer pressure, and all of these things concerning social psychology, just to make you understand that you're not, you don't live in a desert island. Some of these doubts can be as a result of your environment and you didn't even know. To the point there are studies with academics and their peers and there is an obvious answer, but because the peers or so-called peers have said, no, that's not the answer, they've totally changed the understanding of reality just because of social pressure. But we'll discuss this later. Then we're going to be talking about studying Islam, having ilm. I truly believe the more you study Islam and you're patient with it and you're humble, the more wisdom is going to be revealed to you. We know this because when you look at chapter 18 of the Quran, you see Musa alayhi salam having a dialogue with, with Khidr. And Musa alayhi salam comes to him very humbly saying, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be patient because Khidr says, you won't be able to be patient with me. But he, is, tries, he tries to be patient. But he comes across very humble. And at the end, divine wisdom is revealed to him. So this teaches us that if you want divine wisdom or if you want the wisdom of things, then you should be patient and be humble, okay? And once you're patient and humble and you traverse a path of ilm and knowledge, you would you be able to destroy these doubts very effectively. And we're going to give you some case studies concerning the age of concern in the Islamic tradition. We're also going to be talking about women's inheritance as another example. And the other example is going to be Actually, I forgot what the other example is, but don't worry about it. We're going we're gonna to get to it in the next couple of weeks. And when you study Islam, you're going to be like, oh, my God, how amazing is Islam? And you have all of these accusations because people don't have knowledge. And the more knowledge you have about classical, orthodox, mainstream Islam, the more you'll be able to really annihilate these 
doubts and this and these falsehoods. As Allah says in the Quran, that the truth will smash the brains of the falsehood. Okay. Then we're going to talk about critical thinking, which really here is about philosophy or theophilosophical understanding of things, being able to understand things in a way that that shows that you understand how arguments are connected, how you conclude in a philosophical sense, you understand philosophical assumptions of certain positions, and we're going to give you a case study concerning science as a so-called intellectual source of doubt, which is not, but we're going to unravel the philosophy of science to you so you could empower you. We're also going to talk about ethics and, and, and morality and show you how to be how to be able to deal with these based on critical thinking, philosophical thinking, which is all encouraged by the Quran, by the way, which we're going to uh, reference uh, at length, inshallah, God willing. And, you know, I'm looking forward to that one because one of the main sources of doubts is actually morals and science. But when you're able to critically think in this way, they will never become a source of doubt for you in, anymore. Then we're going to talk about the epistemology of testimony and that we have epistemic limitations. We're never going to go. Know, we're never going to know everything. And even in Western philosophy, in Western epistemology, this is the case too. There's lots of work in the epistemology of testimony. We have to refer to the say-so of others, to specialists. And therefore, when you seek a specialist, they'll be able to provide answers to your doubts. We're also going to talk about dealing with trauma, personal trauma, life trauma, negative experiences that we have experienced that maybe is a source of our doubts. And we're going to hopefully give you a strategy which is in line with cognitive science and psychology and also in line with the Islamic tradition on how to stand in the possibility to give your trauma a different meaning that would help you transcend your particular negative, your negative interpretation of those events. Then we're going to tell you on, show you how to focus on your spiritual heart, how to remove the spiritual blemishes, how to engage in valid and authentic Islamic spiritual practice of coming closer to Allah, worshipping Allah, engaging with your afkar, with your remembrance of God, with your du'as, with your supplications, and so on and so forth, your, your recitation of the Qur'an, your prayers, all of these things which are really, really critical in strengthening your spiritual heart. And then we're going to go through some supplications on, on, on how to deal or how to ask Allah to strengthen your iman and your faith and for you to be able to become a force for good, inshallah, and for you to become a strong barrier against destructive, destructive doubts. So that's the summary. And as I said, be patient, stand in the possibility that these may possibly work. Park your, you know, limited understanding, ego, experiences, and all of that to one side. Try and be a blank canvas, and I think we're going to enjoy ourselves, and we're going to come out of this transformed, inshallah, God willing. So, the metaphysical backdrop. Now, some of you may be Muslim, some of you may not be Muslim, you may be agnostic. This is irrelevant. I'm not telling you this in a way that I'm saying this is absolute truth. Yes, I believe to be for it to be true, but for the purposes of the course, I just want you to stand in the possibility that this is a metaphysical backdrop that is effective in understanding ourselves and understanding the world in the context of truth, acquiring truth, acquiring faith, and in the context of doubts. Okay. So 
you have to understand that in the Islamic tradition, we have this understanding of the fitrah. Now, the fitrah has been loosely translated as the innate disposition. Okay, the innate disposition. What is the fitrah? Well, let's start from a linguistic point of view. The fitrah comes from the triliteral Arabic stem, fatara, which you have words like fatrun and fatarahu, which basically means that something has been created within us, and that is an innate natural disposition or an innate nature to acknowledge Allah, that he exists and that he is worthy of worship, and a basic understanding of objective moral values and truths. Now, interestingly, from a theological perspective, it's based on some verses in a prophetic tradition. The Prophet Muhammad وسلم, may God's peace and blessings be upon him, said in an authentic tradition that can be found in Sahih Muslim, that every child is born in a state of fitrah. Then his parents make him a Jew, a Christian, or a Magian. Now, the scholars had an understanding here that this doesn't mean every child is born Muslim, no, in terms of a kind of, you know, legal sense, but rather every child is born in a natural state that will facilitate faith, that will facilitate Iman, that will facilitate that person becoming a Muslim, or it would facilitate them acknowledging the truth of Islam. And the scholars derive from this as well that there is a, an effect of parenting, but also socialization that affects the child. And that's why the child changes, changes their, their understanding or the child becomes something other than a Muslim. Now, interesting here, this innate disposition itself doesn't change because it's created by God. But what happens, and you could use this as some kind of metaphor, is that the fitrah, the innate disposition gets clouded. It gets clouded. And that's why someone who's born a child that has this pure innate state, when the fitrah gets clouded, then they, will, they would adopt a way of life or a worldview that is antithetical to the Islamic tradition. In the Quran, chapter 14, verse 10, God says, that the prophets say, can there be any doubt about God, creator of the heavens and the earth? Now, this here shows a kind of self-evident natural belief of affirming the creator of the heavens and the earth, which is in line with the understanding of the fitrah of the innate disposition. Specifically, the Quran in chapter 30, verse 30 says, Adhere to the fitrah of Allah, to the fitrah of God, upon which he has created all people. No change should there be in the creation of God. That is the correct religion, but most of the people do not know. So here you have this understanding that every human being has been created upon this natural state that God has created within us. And that natural state facilitates us acknowledging the truth. Now, as I said previously, based on the hadith, the prophetic tradition in Sahih Muslim, the fitrah gets clouded. Now, before I get into this issue about the clouding of the fitrah, I think it's important for us to understand the two main views in the Islamic tradition with regards to the fitrah itself. So I've been using the words such as natural disposition, the fitrah directs you towards the truth, but really there are two main positions. Number one, the natural state, the fitrah, doesn't only direct you to the truth or doesn't direct you to the truth, but rather it has truth within it. And some discuss that this means that the fitrah has some kind of proto-knowledge 
or primary knowledge. And there was a discussion in the in the Islamic classical tradition that within the innate disposition you have God's existence, an affirmation of God's existence or the knowledge. So from this perspective, what the scholars say is that there is a there is proton knowledge or primary knowledge within the fitra, within the innate disposition, and that is the proton or primary knowledge of God's existence that he's worthy of extensive praise or worship and some sort of say understand the basic moral values and moral truths or specifically moral values now that's the first position so if it becomes clouded and and due to various reasons it becomes unclouded then what happens is there is a self-awakening there's an awakening of the truth within so the fitra doesn't really directly towards the truth. It already has truth within it in some primary form. And when you uncloud fitra, then it's like a self-awakening. The truth is awakened within. Now, when the fitra is not clouded, then naturally that human being is going to acknowledge the truth because it's already inside them. The other view is that the fitra doesn't contain any knowledge at all. But rather, it's like a spiritual and intellectual vehicle from that perspective, that it directs one towards the truth. So it's like a vehicle that directs you towards the truth. If the windscreen is clean, then you could see your final destination, which is the truth. In this case, it's Islam. However, if the windscreen is clouded or there's mud on it, you can't see where you're going, where you're driving, and you're going to be misdirected towards falsehood now irrespective of which position you you like or you accept both positions make sense with regards to this whole course now the first position has been attributed to the likes of ibn Taymiyyah, the 14th century theologian and the second position has been attributed to the likes of al-ghazali the 11th century theologian okay but irrespective of what position you hold they both make sense with regards to this understanding of acquiring faith and dealing with doubts and how our fitra gets clouded, which I'm going to discuss now. So in the context of doubts, brothers and sisters and friends, it's important for us to understand that the fitra either contains knowledge of the truth within it, which is that God exists, he's worthy of extensive praise and, and some aspects of morality, or that it directs you towards the truth like a spiritual intellectual vehicle, okay? But what happens is the fitra can get clouded. And if you remember the hadith I mentioned in Sahih Muslim, this is because of socialization. In other words, it could get clouded not only because of parents and teaching, but it could get clouded because of doubts themselves. So you could treat each cloud as a shubha. The clouds represent shubuhat. The clouds re represent destructive doubts. Okay? And... There are ways to uncloud the fitra, to awaken the truth within, or to allow this intellectual spiritual vehicle to, to take you towards the journey of truth. Okay? And it's not always rational arguments. And throughout this course, you're going to really appreciate this, especially when I'm going to be giving you some of my experiences in dealing with people who have either left Islam or who have doubts, that it's not always about abstract rational arguments. It's 
different things. Different things can uncloud the fitrah, remove the shubha, remove the shubuhat in order to awaken the truth within or to allow the fitra to be that intellectual spiritual vehicle to drive you towards the truth. So there's different ways of unclouding the fitra. It could be direct revelation, reflecting upon the Quran. It could be having spiritual experiences, positive experiences or negative experiences. It could be just teaching people to reflect and introspect. It could be rational arguments and dealing with the shubha itself, dealing with the destructive doubt itself or dealing with an argument itself, a rational argument or philosophical argument. It could be a combination of these at different intensities and levels. You just don't know. But the point here is this is a brilliant model because it makes sense of reality. It's a representation of the actual state of affairs. It makes sense of reality. Let me give an example. There was someone who left Islam. He was a Pakistani apostate, a student, I believe. And after one university lecture, he basically came up to me and said, I did quantum physics. Your argument for God's existence doesn't make sense because causality doesn't make sense outside of the universe. Now, because of maybe my experiences and the way he came across, I had a hunch from what I remember, I had a hunch that it, this had nothing to do with an intellectual question. This was a veil that was hiding something else that was going on. So I said to him, what do you mean by causality? Obviously, because I study philosophy, I know that in especially Western metaphysics, obviously there's no rejection of cause and effect per se, but there's a discussion on the nature of the causal link. What is causality? So I had a brief discussion with him on this, and then he basically says to me, I don't know. And I said to him, my friend, isn't it very interesting that you're, that the key word you're using to reject God, you don't really know the meaning of that word. What's up, bro? Let's sit down. So we sat down, and what does he conclude or tell me at the end? From what I remember, he said to me, it was about the fact that he was brought up in a secular home, and when he prayed, he didn't really feel a connection to God. So his problem was fundamentally different from his initial question. So this goes to show that sometimes it's not just about rational arguments. It could be about spiritual experiences, reflection, introspection, revelation, whatever the case may be. And this allows us to become intellectually spiritually mature because we understand that human beings are not abstract rational robots. We're not abstract rational robots. We have a psychological disposition. Like in the Islamic tradition, the way we see the human being, the human being has a ruh, has a soul, has a fitra, an innate disposition, as we just mentioned, has a qalb, and the qalb is the spiritual heart, and the aql is the intellect, it's not the brain, because according to the scholars, the aql, the intellect, is a function of the spiritual heart, and the heart, the qalb, what does it do? It does taqallub, it wavers and changes all the time. So there's all these crazy things going on, we're a dynamic thing, we're not an AI machine that you just put in some code and put an algorithm in there and you're going to expect certain results you know sometimes when we think something is rational it's actually not really rational study cognitive biases for example you you see this for yourself but the point i'm trying to see here from a specifics point of view in to to specify it clearly with regards to the notion of doubts and faith is that standing the possibility that we have this innate disposition it either has some kind of primary knowledge that god exists and is worthy of worship or it is like a spiritual intellectual vehicle that drives you towards the truth, in this case, Islam. Now, it can get clouded. 
So we need to learn to uncloud the fitrah. And the clouding of the fitrah can be because of parenting, of teaching, of, of, of sins, of negative experiences, of misinformation maybe. But in the context of our course, this clouding could be because of shubuhat, destructive doubts. How do you uncloud the fitrah to awaken the truth within? How do you uncloud the fitrah to allow it to be that intellectual and spiritual vehicle to drive you towards the truth? It's not just rational arguments. It could be personal experiences. Maybe this human being wants to have a positive experience with a Muslim. Maybe there is psychodynamic trauma. Their parents. I had another experience in my town where someone saw my debate with Lawrence Krauss and he said, oh, great debate, but I'm still an atheist. He said something like that. And, I, and then I sent something about him, about him and I said, how are your parents, bro? And he looked at me as if to say to me, from what I remember, how did you know? And he started talking about the negative, almost dark environment that he was brought up in. And he associated this darkness with the Islamic tradition. He had a psychodynamic issue. Also, I had another experience with someone who works for a very famous social media company. And we were talking about artificial intelligence and the philosophy of the mind and can, and can artificial intelligence become human one day? He thought he could. it could. Then I talked to him about, you know, there's a difference between strong AI and weak AI. And, you know, you could read this on the Sapiens Institute website in the answers section where, you know, we refer to Professor John Sell's Chinese room experiment, for example. And there's a distinction between semantics and syntax and so on and so forth. So AI can never be truly conscious. Anyway, point is we had that discussion and I really said to him, look, you know, what's your real problem? And he basically said that, you know, he had an issue with God's names and attributes that sounded quite human. Now, to cut a longer story short, obviously I explained to him that we believe in there is nothing like Allah, there is nothing like uh, God, he is transcendent, which the Quran affirms. And, you know, these names and attributes of God are understood in the sense of, of his transcendence and, 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 and uniqueness. But notwithstanding that, I noticed in our discussion that he intellectually and logically contradicted himself. And for me, that was an indication that there was a psychodynamic or spiritual and emotional thing going on. And I subtly, hopefully with emotional intelligence, I presented that contradiction to him. And I did it in a way to show that maybe there is something else going on. And I referred to my own personal experiences with my father. When I did that, from what I remember, he stood up and started crying. It's like, it's as if I triggered him. I pressed the button and something came out. And to cut a long story short, we found out from his mother that his main issues from this perspective was that he had very negative experience with father figures, or at least one father figure. And the arguments that he was, he was posing were not well thought out. They were ridiculous and he contradicted himself. But for the average person, if you didn't have these experiences, maybe or these insights, you would have thought, oh, my God, they have a valid intellectual question. But he didn't. That's another example to show that your fitra can get clouded. You may have a clouded innate disposition that you think is because of a rational reason, but it's not. It's because of psychodynamic reason. And it requires this kind of process of engagement to understand that. But the point here is, it's just reaffirming the point that there is more than one way to uncloud the fitra. So this is the metaphysical back backdrop. So if you understand this properly, when we go throughout all of the effective strategies and we talk about certain experiences and we talk about the sources of doubts, you're going to start to realize and hopefully internalize within yourself, you know what, let me stand in the possibility that my doubt is not really an intellectual doubt. 
It could be because of the way I've been brought up. It could be because of my spiritual experiences. It could be with my negative experiences with Muslims or with family. It could be because I have an ego problem. We don't know, but the point is, stand in the possibility that the cloud over your innate disposition is not necessarily just rational. It could be other, other, other. It could, it could be for other reasons. And we need to now understand the process of unclouding our fitrah. And hopefully, these effective strategies will help you do that. And we'll unpack that later on uh, throughout the course, God willing. So let's now move on to the nature of the heart, which is very important for this kind of metaphysical backdrop. Now, obviously, when it comes to faith, when it comes to Iman, as we say in the Arabic Islamic tradition, you know, Iman essentially is, is, means faith, but it's something more than that. So I don't want you to secularize the term because we have a post-Christian, post-secular understanding of this term. Iman really is not only just an abstract belief, but it's something that you affirm, you know, in your heart, you affirm it on your tongue, the way you express with the way you express it uh, verbally, and you affirm it in your actions. You affirm it in the way that you relate to yourself, you relate to others, and fundamentally the way you relate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So yes, there is an intellectual conviction here, but also it manifests itself, and part of Iman is, 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 how, is what, how it affects your tongue, what you say, and how you relate, and how you act in the world, how you relate to yourself, how you relate to others, and how you relate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But from the point of view of the heart, the heart is extremely important here because your, your conviction, your yaqeen, as we say in the Arabic Islamic tradition, is in your heart. Your yaqeen is in your heart. So it is extremely important for us to understand the nature of the heart, its desired state, and its main tribulations. So let's start with what is the heart in the Islamic tradition. That is the kind of spiritual heart is called the qalb. And it comes from the root, which means something that turns around and upside down. Qalaba, it does taqallub. So the heart engages in taqallub, which means to move around, to change around, to waver, to waver from that perspective. So, you know, this makes sense when it comes to doubts and your faith going up and down slightly and fluctuating because the nature of the heart itself is to waver. It is to waver. You know, someone may be in love with a woman one day and after a week, they're not in love anymore. Or, you know, one day, you know, I might like a curry, but after a few days of curries, I've changed my mind. Even, you know, when my wife speaks to me and she says to me, do you like this color? I'll be like, yeah, it's a great color. Then after a few months, I don't like it anymore. And she gets confused. I'm like, well, I was in a different state, right? And your state of being is really dictated about what's going on in your heart, right? <laughs> I know it's very hard to live with me, but you get the point. You know, your heart wavers. The heart wavers from that perspective. So the challenge here is, is to ensure that the heart remains firm on the truth, which is Islam. So it needs to remain firm on the truth. So what is its desired state? Well, here is a verse from the Quran and a verse from the prophetic traditions. In the Quran, in chapter 26, verse 88 to 89, Allah basically says to us that uh, we, no one will be safe on the day of judgment unless you come to Allah, you come to God with a sound heart. With a sound heart. So our heart has to be sound. Not always doing taqallub, changing and wavering, right? But to be sound and firm 
on 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 faith, firm on the conviction in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He is worthy of worship. And this echoes a prophetic tradition narrated by Bukhari and Muslim. It's an authentic tradition. Truly, in the body there is a morsel of flesh, which if it if it is sound, the whole body is sound. And when it is corrupted, the whole body is corrupted. Truly, it is the heart. So this is the desired state from the Islamic perspective. We need to have a sound heart, a heart that is firm, that has conviction, that has yaqeen. And by the way, when we say certainty, yaqeen, in the Islamic tradition, there are levels of certainty in the Islamic tradition. And this is very important for you to make a distinction because sometimes we may think that, our, that we are uncertain, but, but in reality, you are still certain. It's just there's been a fluctuation within the realm of certainty. Because in the Islamic tradition, certainty is in the heart. Yaqeen is in the heart. And there's not one level of certainty. And that's why the Quran talks about three types of certainty. You have ilm al-yaqeen, you have ayn al-yaqeen, and you have haqq al-yaqeen. So ilm al-yaqeen is the, the yaqeen, the certainty of knowledge, which is equivalent of someone saying to you, someone calls you and says, oh bro, your, your house is on fire. He's giving you information. It's a, it's a knowledge thing. So you trust him, he's never lied to you, he wouldn't lie about something like this, so you're certain and that's the case, okay? So this is ilm al-yaqeen. But then you have another level of certainty in this case, which is ayn al-yaqeen, which is the certainty of the eye, that you are actually seeing it for yourself. So from an example, the same, using the same example, you walk on your street and you see your house on fire. So that's ayn al-yaqeen, you're seeing your house on fire. You don't need someone to tell you because you're seeing it. Then the other level of certainty of yaqeen is haqq al-yaqeen, which is what? It's the certainty of not only knowing and seeing, but being it, right? And the equivalent here, and may God protect every single one of us, is that you're in the fire in your own house and you're burning. Yeah, And you don't need to be told that there's a fire in your house. You don't need to see it, you're feeling it, right? It, it, it's true by virtue of your own experience, right? So, but it's true by virtue of you being in it and being immersed in that truth. So there are levels of certainty here. So just because sometimes you may feel that it may be in a certain aspect of your Islam or faith that you may have an ilm al-yaqeen, you may have a certainty based on a certain transmission that you're convinced in, or someone has told you something, or it's a form of certainty that is based on something that you haven't seen for yourself and you haven't, ex you haven't experienced for yourself. This doesn't mean you're not certain. It's just a different level of certainty. So you should be able to make a distinction between the different levels of yaqeen. But moving on, the main fitan, the main... Diseases, maybe disease is the wrong word to use because diseases of the heart are something else in the Islamic tradition, such as the four major diseases of the heart include hasad, blameworthy jealousy, riya, which is ostentation, which is self-amazement, and the other one is kibr, which is arrogance. But here we're talking about fitan. I know I've mentioned in this slide it's illnesses, but really think about fitan, which basically means tribulations. There is two main tribulations of the heart. Number one, and really understand this shahawat which are desires you know you always want to follow your desires your blameworthy desires your bestial desires you are succumbed by them you they have mastery over you then you have something called shubuhat 
which are destructive doubts. Shubuhat are destructive doubts. As Ibn, Ibn Qayyum says, he was the student of Ibn Taymiyyah, the 14th century theologian, may Allah have mercy on both of them. He says, fitna is of two types. The fitna of shubuhat, this one being the greater of the two, and the fitna of shahawat. So the tribulation of destructive doubts and the tribulation of desires. Ibn Qayyim says that shubuhat, destructive doubts, are worse than shahawat, are worse than following your desires. And we know this to be the case. Now, I could know Islam is the truth, but I could follow my shahawat, my desires, by drinking alcohol, by doing naughty things. But I'm not saying that drinking alcohol is now permissible. I'm not saying these sins and naughty things are allowed in Islam. I'm not changing Islam. I still believe Islam to be true. But I'm following my desires, which is still blameworthy. But shubuhat is worse. Because shubuhat basically says to you, oh, it's a type of destructive doubt that changes the religion. It's a destructive doubt that changes the truth of Islam. It's a destructive doubt that basically is like a parasite that drains your faith and says, you know, God doesn't exist. Or the Quran is not from God. Or, you know, the Prophet Muhammad upon whom he peace is not really the Prophet. This is far worse. Why? Because you enter into kufr. You enter into the rejection of the truth. Now, obviously, we don't like to give this kind of binary examples but for argument's sake what would you rather who would you rather be someone who believes in the absolute truth of islam but yet is following your your hawa your blameworthy desires you, your your heart is full of shahawat and you're doing all of these sins or you don't do any sins but you doubt the existence of god and you doubt the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam you don't really believe in islam but we all know if you really study Islamic theology, mainstream Islamic theology, having conviction in Islam is far more, far more important because that is your key to eternal paradise. That's your key to the special love of Allah. Don't get me wrong. Allah has this loving mercy for all creatures, Muslim and non-Muslim. Because Allah says that his rahmah, his intense mercy encompasses everything. But if you want that special love where you have to now open the door, it was never closed, it's not locked, but you need to open it yourself. In order to experience that special divine love, you have to accept the truth. So let's again now zoom in on this concept of shubuhat. So obviously in the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about destructive doubts, which are shubuhat. Now, shubuhat is the plural for shubha. So when we say a shubha, a shubha is a doubt, and shubuhat are many doubts, many destructive doubts. And interestingly, the, the shubha is called so because it, it resembles the truth. Tushbihu. It resembles, as, as Fayumi, Al-Fayumi says, a shubha is called so because it resembles the truth. From this point of view, a doubt it doesn't have any intellectual basis, has no validity, but it resembles the truth, but it's falsehood. It's like a wolf in sheep's clothing. And that's why Ibn Taymiyyah, he comments, every significant belief usually contains an element of, of truth. Shubha min al-haq. Since if that wasn't the case, such views would not have circulated. And that is the dangerous nature 
of destructive doubts because they they look true but in reality they're not in reality they're not so that is what a shubha is that's what shubhat are they are something that resembles something other than itself because the essence of a shubha is falsehood but it resembles the truth and people get confused now, before I continue, you really need to understand something, brothers and sisters and friends. It's so important for you to understand this. Remember, and we're going to discuss this next week as well, or hopefully, I think, towards the end of this webinar, which is Shubuhat are not intellectually strong. The reason we need to have these strategies is because our hearts are weak. And remember, Ibrahim alayhi salam, Abraham, upon whom be peace, he's the... the the destroyer of idols. He supplicated to Allah in the Quran that him and his family are protected from associating partners with God. That him and his family are, are protected from idol worship. The Prophet Habibullah, the love of God, the love of Allah, he used to make dua that Allah keeps his heart firm on faith, firm on the religion. So even the Sahaba, the companions of the Prophet wasallam, great Sahaba, they were worried about nifaq. They were worried about hypocrisy. If such great people, the best people to walk this planet, were, were aware of shubuhat and wanted to prevent themselves from entering into the darkness of shubuhat, then what about us? It's not about intellectual arguments. There is no intellectual veracity to these shubuhat, but it's because our hearts are weak and this, there's a spiritual dimension to this and it acts like a parasite likes to suck your iman, suck your faith from your heart. I wanted to add this here, which is quite interesting because, you know, our pious predecessors used to speak about these things. So according to Abdurrahman ibn Yazid, he said that Ibn Masood, may Allah be pleased with him said, the righteous would disappear and the people of doubts will remain. And the people said, Oh, Abu Abdurrahman, who are the people of doubts? And Ibn Masud said, People who do not enjoy good and do not forbid evil. In another narration, Ibn Masud said, They do not acknowledge good nor reject evil. So maybe one of the reasons that maybe we're living in a time of doubt is because we're not people who are enjoying good and forbidding evil. And if you enjoy good and forbid evil, there are a lot of prerequisites. And one of those prerequisites is to have ilm, is to have knowledge, right? is to have wisdom, is to have hikmah. So we've lost knowledge and we've lost wisdom in, 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 in today's society. So today's crisis and challenges. So as you know, a lot of these shubuhat, a lot of these doubts come from other isms and schisms. And, you know, without a doubt, we have atheism, skepticism, liberalism, neoliberalism, extremism on, all, on both sides postmodernism, nihilism, and all these isms and schisms. And, and because of this kind of the internet and social media and mass sharing of information and, you know, the post-truth culture that we live in, because no one wants to verify anything anymore because of the nature of social media and the nature of the fact that we've lost trust in authorities, you know, it's creating a lot of shubuhat, it's creating a lot of doubts and it's creating a lot of destructive doubts. Now, Moving on to like the main areas of doubts, there are three main areas. Now I've taken this from the Yaqeen Institute website. 
It's called What Causes Muslims to Doubt? A Quantitative Analysis. And I really like this because, you know, I've been trying to engage in this work in the past, what, past 15 years or more, or maybe less, a little bit less. And throughout my experiences, you could take the shubuhat, you could take the destructive doubts and put them into these categories. Moral and social concerns, philosophical and scientific concerns, or personal trauma. So these are some examples of the moral and social concerns. For example, Islam's teachings about women, the hypocrisy of religious people, uh, the bad things that people do in the name of religion, the intolerance that some religious people show towards other faiths, the intolerance that some religious, religious people show towards other people, um, and so on and so forth. So philosophical and scientific concerns could include the issue of evolution through natural selection, God's existence from a scientific empirical point of view, uh, uncertainty about the existence of God, the problem of evil and suffering, the unfair world, you know, feeling that certain religious practices just don't make sense from a scientific or philosophical perspective, and so on and so forth. The other final, the final source is personal trauma, which can include, you know, finding that being religious doesn't really make you happy, not feeling welcomed in your faith community, the death of a loved one, maybe your own personal trauma in your life, it could be a divorce, it could be that you're a victim of domestic violence, it could be that, you know, your parents used to abuse you. Well, you don't know, trauma comes in different shapes and sizes and in different levels. Everyone has suffered trauma to a certain degree. So that could be one of the major sources of shubuhat, of destructive doubts. Now we're going to unpack all of these sources much more when we go through the 10 effective strategies in dealing with your and other people's doubts. So just coming back to you on what the 10 strategies are, my brothers and sisters and friends. So the 10 strategies are, as we said, and we summarize them already, be aware, no attention, make the distinction your environment, your friends, acquiring ilm, studying Islam, critical thinking, finding a specialist, dealing with trauma, focusing on your heart and making dua, making dua. So these are the doubts that we're going to be dealing with. Next week, we're going to deal with effective, so these are the effective strategies that we're going to be dealing with. Next week, we're going to be dealing effective with effective strategy one to three. So we're going to be talking about being aware, not giving attention and making the distinction, as I said earlier, between shubuhat, waswasa and valid questions. And that's a very powerful point that we're going to focus on because as I said previously, being able to make distinctions empowers you. And then Week number three, we're going to go through strategy number four, which is your environment and social psychology, your friends, etc. Week number four, we're going to go through strategy number five, which is studying Islam, which would include responses to key shubuhat as case studies. Week number five, we're going to be going through developing critical thinking and Islamic thought, such as the in dealing with the key sources of doubt, such as moral, moral issues, scientific issues, philosophical issues. Week number six, we're going to be going through strategies seven to eight, which is about finding a specialist and dealing with trauma. Week number seven is about strategies number nine and ten, which is about strengthening your spiritual heart and supplicating to Allah. And week number eight is a summary and exam. So uh, from this point of view now, brothers and sisters, this first week is now complete.